morning and uh, join me in a word of prayer. And let's begin by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, we do praise You that You are our Heavenly Father, that You reign over this world as we just sang. Hallelujah to our great God. You are awesome. And we praise You that You are so powerful and great that You brought this beautiful, amazing universe into existence merely by speaking. That Your Word is so powerful that You simply have to say the Word and things that do not exist come into existence. And Lord, not only does Your Word create, but Your Word sustains. We know from the Scriptures that it teaches that You uphold everything by Your powerful Word. Moment by moment, God, the universe as we know it, the very molecules of our body are held together because of Your Word. Lord, it was Your Word spoken to Abraham that set the people of Israel into motion. It was Your Word spoken to Moses and the Israelites that created the nation of Israel. Lord, it was Your Word through the prophets that spoke of the coming of Jesus. And we thank You so much for Jesus who is the living Word of God. And we thank You that Your Word today, the Bible, continues to give life, to create that which does not exist. And so, Lord, we come to the Bible and to the the teaching of the Scriptures not just as an inspiring book, but as the inspired book. As a book that gives life, that breathes uh, life into us spiritually. And so, Lord, as we come today to study the Bible, we pray that You would speak to our hearts. God, we pray that You would be with our nation uh, tomorrow on the fifth anniversary of 9-11. Lord, we uh, pray that we would turn to You. God, we remember how full the churches were all over the nation the week after. And God, yet our faith uh, dwindles so quickly. Help us to remember, Lord, that our lives are fragile, that uh, the freedom we have is fragile. And God, we thank You for it and we pray for those who are serving overseas to protect our freedom. We pray that You'd bless them this day. And God, we pray for uh, this nation that You would strengthen it and uphold it. God, we think about the uh, elections that are coming up in November. And we pray that Your Holy Spirit would be at work in our nation, that You would uh, bring godly men and women, people who stand for truth and righteousness into positions of leadership in our nation. Lord, we pray for this church. We thank You, God, for the missionaries that are supported by this church. We pray that You bless them today. God, bless our junior high school and high school students who are uh, on Cape Cod this weekend at a a youth camp, their their annual youth kickoff. Lord, we pray for those 70-plus students that You would bless them, that You would uh, speak to their hearts. Lord, they live in a generation that is full of drugs and wickedness and materialism and promiscuity. Lord, there are so many forces at work to destroy uh, youth today. We pray, God, that You would work against those forces and that You would work in their hearts to cause them to cling to You, Jesus. Lord, we pray for our quarterly business meeting that's happening on Tuesday night. We pray that You would guide us as a church, that there might be joy and unity in our midst as we think about the good things You've done in us in this church over the past quarter and as we look ahead to the coming year. Lord, thank You for those in our church who uh, You've raised out of difficulty and illness. Thank You, Lord, for strengthening Barbara Walsh and bringing her through her surgery. Lord, we pray for uh, Karen Lyons and Phil Tardinico 
as they recover from injuries and go through chemotherapy, Lord, we pray that You'd bless all those in our church who are struggling with physical ailments. Maybe some I don't even know about God, but You know every cell in their body. We pray that You would touch them and strengthen them this morning. Lord, we pray for those members of our church who are shut in and can't be with us. We think this morning of Marjorie Visser and Martin Kazarian. Lord, would You bless uh, all those who are members of our body but because of ill health cannot be here. And Lord, stir us to go visit them. Cause us, Lord, to care about those who are shut in, even if we don't know them, but just to do it because they're part of this body. And Lord, uh, we pray for all those who are here this morning who are discouraged and brokenhearted. Lord, I know we sit here and we see each other and we look fine, but God, You see into our hearts. You know the brokenness, hurt. You know, Lord, which of us are struggling with depression, which of us are grieving the loss of loved ones. And so, God, we pray that You administer to our hearts today. And most of all, Lord, would You make us a holy church, a church that loves Christ, a church that loves one another and that loves the Bible. Lord, make us a praying church. Make us a serving church. Lord, work in our midst, we pray. And now as we look to the Bible, we pray that You would do all this through the simple power of Your Word. Would You answer all these requests now, Lord, because You are the King, and whatever You say goes. And so we turn to You and trust in You now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'd invite any children here, uh, kindergarten or third grade. Uh, just to, uh, yes, Nadine. I'm sorry, I can't. Can I talk to you after the service? Would that be okay? Thank you, Nadine. Any children here, kindergarten to second grade, may be dismissed to children's church. And uh, if you are in the kids' choir, if you're a uh, Third to uh, fifth grade or in the kids' choir, you can be dismissed to that as well. And while our kids are being dismissed to Children's Church, I invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And if you're using a pew Bible and maybe you're a little fuzzy on the Gospel of Luke, it's on page uh, 1033. Page 1033. Luke chapter 13. And uh, for those of you who are new with us, we're glad you're here. We've been studying through the Gospel of Luke for like a year now, and we're kind of just slowly plodding our way through it. That's kind of what we do, study through books of the Bible. And right now we're in the Gospel of Luke, page 1033 in the Pew Bible, Luke chapter 13. And verse 22, let me read the text. It says, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as He made His way to Jerusalem. Someone asked Him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last 
who will be first, and first, who will be last. Interesting question there in verse 23, isn't it? Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Uh, How many people will be saved? How many people will enter eternal life? How many will enter into the kingdom of God? How many go to heaven? Is it a lot? Is it many? Is it a few? Um, It's a question that that there are different answers to today. Different people have different perspectives. Um, I I was thinking you could kind of oversimplify it if you wanted to and say that there's three basic answers to this question. Uh, One answer to the question is that everybody is saved. That everybody experiences eternal life. This is the answer of universalism. Uh, this is, that's what universalism means, that everybody in the universe, I guess, uh, goes, all dogs go to heaven, so to speak. Um, it's kind of, you might even associate this with sort of Eastern thought, the idea that, you know, Eastern thought is all is one, everything is God, God is everything, and so in a sense, everything is saved because everything is divine and it's all sort of uh, one thing. So Eastern monism would kind of tend toward this sort of idea, though not precisely. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, a second answer to that question, how many will be saved? Uh, is that none will be saved. And here I think of like atheism. Uh, You know, the atheist says, well, there's no hell to be saved from. There's no heaven to be saved to. There's no God to do any saving. So salvation really is like, it's non-existent. There's no such thing because there's no, uh, nothing into which that fits. Uh, And then of course the third position would be something in between and it would be something like some people are saved. And, and that's where this person asking the question apparently is coming from. He wants to know how many. He, he doesn't think it's everyone, and he thinks there's some. So how many? Is it just going to be a few? And the Jews in Jesus' day would have wrestled with that question. Uh, you know, was it just the Pharisees who were going to be saved? Was it that little group by the Dead Sea? Maybe you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was a bunch of monks. That, I guess they're kind of like monks, and they lived by the Dead Sea, and they collected the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're called the, the Qumran community, the Essenes. Maybe they were the ones who were going to be saved. That's what they thought. So who is it that's going to enter in to the kingdom of God and how many is it? I mean, how many of us are going to be saved? I wonder how many people in this room, including myself, will know eternal life when we die. Um, how many are entering the kingdom of God? And I love Jesus' answer. Jesus does his typical Jesus thing where he doesn't answer the question directly. He, he, he just kind of refuses to be put on the spot. People hit him with a question, but he won't be pigeonholed, and he turns it around as an opportunity to say what's on his mind that he wants to say. And so rather than simply answering the question and giving a number, or saying, you know, 1,568,000 will be saved, or something like that, you know, what he says is he turns it around and he says, no, 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 the real question is, what are you doing to ensure that you are in the kingdom of God? Because that's the real issue. Rather than getting lost in philosophical speculation, Lord, how many are predestined and why does God predestine some and not others? No, 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 no. The question is, are you and I entering into the kingdom of God? So rather than getting lost in abstraction, Jesus wants to go straight to application and ask us where we are at. And so look how he turns the question around in verse 24. This is his answer. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will, be, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. And so Jesus says, make every effort. You see that in verse 24? Now in Greek, that, what's in English there is make every effort. In Greek it's just one word. It's a great word. It's agonizomai. From which we get the word agony. 
agony. It's, it's strive, struggle. Uh, in Greek, this is the word that's used to describe what athletes would do in the Greco-Roman games. I was thinking of like the Nike commercials, you know, where the guy's playing basketball and then he you know, takes a swig of Gatorade and, or whatever Gatorade commercials and you, know, you see the, the colored sweat coming down his face because he's struggling, he's striving. Uh, this Greek word agonizomai is the word that's used to describe what combatants do when they're fighting with swords and shields and tridents in the gladiatorial arena. They're wrestlers, you know, who are fighting Greco-Roman wrestling. It's this very combative, aggressive, muscles tense, sweat dripping, heart pounding, struggling kind of word. It's a very active uh, word. Uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about a great image of agonizomai. Um, think about, well, you're thinking about the Patriots anyway, I know you are. I mean, they're playing in what, like, four hours is their, their kickoff, first game of the season. So, you might as well just talk about the Patriots. This is what I want you to do this afternoon. When you're watching the Patriots, okay, and they do some replay, and it's the slow-mo, don't watch the quarterback, don't watch the running back, don't watch the catch and the wide receiver. I want you to just take a couple times and focus in on what's happening with the defensive line, all right? And, and watch those like 350-pound trucks of just, just powerful guys who can bench press hundreds of pounds and can squat even more. I just want to you just watch them when the snap happens and those guys explode off the line. I mean, watch how they fight and push. And, I mean, it's amazing. And they do it play after play. You know, for this whole game, they're just pushing themselves forward, trying to enter the offensive pocket. That's the picture. Entering the kingdom of God, this kind of grappling and forcing. And so when you watch those defensive linemen, I want you to think of this sermon. And be like, yes. <laughs> Jesus wants me to be you know, a nose tackle. That's it. He wants me to strive to enter the kingdom of God with that kind of power, aggression, intensity, with, with that kind of almost crazed focus that the, the tackle has on getting the quarterback. He wants to eat the quarterback. And so you need to strive to enter the kingdom of God. The reality is, of course, that we strive like that for all kinds of things in our lives. We, we have that intensity for different things. Uh, sometimes it's about money. And so we work seven-hour work weeks and, you know, 13-hour days and we're, we're just on the Internet and making calls and trying to do everything we can to get to the next level financially, whatever that is. Um, mothers uh, strive for their children. I mean, you know, we have them in like five extracurricular activities because they have to be the best. And, and so we're driving them around in our, you know, minivans and SUVs. We've kind of entered this phase of life. And, and so we're striving. I mean, we're just like killing ourselves, driving kids everywhere. And, you know, I was at uh, soccer. As soon as I go to soccer games on Saturday mornings, it's when our kids have soccer. And, you know, you listen to the parents talk to each other. It's almost like bragging. Like, yeah, I got two soccer games today. We had hockey at four this morning. And, um, you know, then there's like uh, two t-ball games today. And, oh, yeah, well, what do you got? You know, and so, you know, it's like, what are we doing? We're just killing ourselves trying to get people to events because we want our kids to turn out a certain way. We're striving. Uh, some of us are striving to find a mate. And so we want to make sure that we look the right way. We try to, you know, do internet, e-harmony, whatever. And, and we're, you know, evaluating every conversation. You're like, you talk to your girlfriend, like, did he look at me? And what was that? And so, you know, always thinking and working and trying to make it happen. Little boys strive to solve video games. They play until their fingers are tired. And then they play some more and they drink some Coke to stay up late so they can get to the next level of, you know, whatever it is that they're playing. 
And so we strive all the time. And the thing that I'm ashamed of is how little I strive for the kingdom of God with the same intensity. And yet, you know, that's the most important thing, right? The most important question there is that you can ask yourself is, is there a God? And if there is, then that affects everything. And if there isn't, well, that affects everything too. And then nothing really matters, actually. There's no sense in anything. But if there is a God, then we should know who he is. And so these are the important questions. And yet those aren't the questions that we tend to strive over. We strive over other things. Do I really uh, pray? Do I wrestle in prayer, yearning for God's kingdom to come into my life? Do I struggle to know Jesus? Do I read the Bible searching to grow in holiness? Is there a sense of intensity and eagerness to what I do? Jesus says, strive to enter the kingdom of God. And you know, this isn't just a word, I think, for people who don't know Christ or who aren't Christians who are kind of thinking about Christianity. This is a word for Christians too. Uh, and, And I'm not saying that we're saved by works, that we're saved by doing things. We're saved by faith in Christ. But the thing is, faith in Jesus is a very active thing. Faith in Jesus is alive. Jesus said, you know, if you come to me, I'll give you living water that will come gushing out of your soul. It's a a very vibrant, dynamic thing to have faith in Jesus. It's not just like, oh yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross way back when. No, no. To trust Jesus changes you and it sets you in motion. It, it, It launches you into activity. Faith pushes outward. It pushes forward. And so... Uh, I even think for, for us as Christians, there, there ought to be a sense in which we continue to strive, in, in which there's a dynamism to our Christian life. And I was thinking of a, a passage in uh, Philippians. In fact, put a bookmark here, if you would, and Luke, we'll come back to it. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages. It's on page 1163 in the Pew Bible. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to some Christians who lived in a a Roman city called Philippi. And Paul wrote to the Philippians. This is a letter he wrote, and it's kind of like a sermon letter. He's encouraging them. So look at Philippians chapter 3, page 1163, and we're looking at verse 7. And, and let me just read this. It's, it's a little bit long, but what I want you to be listening for is the intensity and urgency with which Paul is pursuing his knowledge of Jesus. Look at verse 7. He says, whatever it was to my profit, whatever I had going for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Everything's trash in relationship to knowing Jesus. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, so it's not salvation by the law or by works, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Do you hear that? you hear that longing to know Jesus more? To walk more close? Like that song we sang, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. I think that's the spirit of this text. I want to know Christ more and to walk with Him more faithfully, to serve Him more, to use more of my life, my financial resources, my time resources, everything I am poured out for Christ. In fact, look at verse 12. Uh, Interesting, Paul goes on and he adopts an athletic metaphor. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this. So that's encouraging. Paul hadn't achieved it either. 
or have already been made perfect. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, here it is, here's the athletic metaphor, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So it's not like you strive to enter the kingdom and then when you come to know Christ, then it's like, woo, finally made it, you know. We keep striving. There's an earnestness to know Jesus more in our lives. And I found that just very convicting. That's probably the thing that convicted me most personally as I studied this passage, was just thinking through, is there that urgency and seriousness to my Christian life? Is there a yearning in my heart to grow as a Christian? Is there an eagerness in me to, to find areas of my life where I need to defeat sin or to... Uh, to pray or to be concerned about the things of the kingdom of God, like those who are lost and missions and you know all that stuff? Or am I just kind of like, yeah, complacent, happy, comfortable? And so I'm praying for more urgency and more uh, zeal in my life to know Christ. Because this is serious business. Because if you'll notice, back in verse 24, I'm back in Luke now, chapter 13. Um, the thing is, the door is narrow. That's why we have to strive. The door is narrow. He says, make every effort to make it through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. So it's narrow. It's not wide. It's not easy. You have to make an effort. You have to strive and work at it. You know, there's this kind of metaphor that I've heard people use today. It's like there's many paths up the mountain. You heard this. So like, you know, the imagery is of a mountain and God or eternal life or nirvana or whatever is at the top. And there's lots of paths. There's the Christian path, or you can go up Karbala, or you can hike up the path of mysticism, or you can hike up the path of meditation. Or, you know, and there's lots of paths, and they all get up to the top, and they meet at the same place. There's a lot of spokes going to the same center of the wheel. Uh, but, I mean, apparently that's not how Jesus conceptualized it. If someone had said that to Jesus, you know, he would have totally disagreed with them. Um, you know, I'm just telling you what he says here. He's saying there's a narrow door. You know, the image is more like, imagine Fenway Park, with one opening. And everyone has to go through that door on game day. One turnstile to go through. One guy punching your ticket. I mean, could you imagine the madness? It's like, you know, get me in here. Where's the line? Hey, that guy's cutting. Fights are breaking out. People are going crazy. You know, it's just, you know, it's, there's kind of a sense of mayhem in this, um, you know, godly mayhem in this story here as people are striving to enter through the narrow door. They're urging themselves forward. But not only is the door narrow, the thing is it's only open temporarily. That's another reason we need to strive to know Christ and to find the truth. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. That's what it's all about, knowing him. That's what it means to enter the kingdom of God is to know Jesus, right? Isn't that what Paul talked about? I want to know Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. I don't know you. So we need to strive to know Christ because the window of opportunity is open for only a short time. Um, you know, there is no reincarnation. You were not Cleopatra in a former life. You will not have multiple lives after this to try. You know, it's not how it works. God's given us a life and we have it in front of us. This is our life. I don't know how long yours will be or mine will be, but we have this time when the door is open to strive to enter the kingdom of God. 
So there's a sense of urgency and uh, pressure about this. And so I, that's the, the challenge I take from this text. Is, is there an urgency in my striving after God? Or am I just kind of you know, flaked out, tuned out, everything's fine, striving after other things, which may be good things that we need to do, but not striving after the kingdom of God. And why is it then that we don't strive? I mean, why don't we put the same effort into the things of God as we do to other things? And I guess there's as many answers to that question as there are people. But I would just like to take a few minutes here and look at the two examples Jesus gives of why people don't enter. Because here we go, the story goes on and the owner of the house, who's Jesus in this story, is talking to the people outside and he's going back and forth with them about why they should enter or why they should not enter. And in doing so, he surfaces two reasons why these people didn't enter. So we could talk about a lot of them, but let me just look at two. Uh, And the first reason that people don't enter, don't strive, don't push forward like a defensive lineman is because uh, what we might call the error of proximity. That's the first error we sometimes make is the error of proximity. The error of proximity is when you assume or confuse being near the door with going through the door. You know, they're close, but they're different. And in fact, there's an eternally vast difference between being near the door and going through the door. And God is calling us to come through the door, not just to stand near it, not just to be in close proximity to it. So look at the text. Look at verse 26. So the people are having an argument with Jesus on the judgment day. That's kind of the imagery. Verse 26, Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. You know, we were close to you, Jesus. What do you mean you don't know me? You remember you came to my village? Remember me? I was there and my uncle, you healed him? That was awesome. And then you started teaching and I sat in the sun, hot sun, for four hours listening to you teach. I mean, Jesus, it was great. I mean, I was hot and I got sunburned, but you know, it was fine. I mean, really, Jesus, it was great. And then afterwards there was that party and I kind of came to the party even though I wasn't invited and you were partying at that guy's house and he was the rich guy in town, but I snuck in the back and, and I was like, I was actually like really near you, Jesus. I was like three seats away. I was there. I was eating and drinking with you. I was close. Do you remember me? And Jesus is like, who are you? I don't know you. You don't know in a personal, related way. And so we can't assume that just because we are near or in close proximity to the narrow door, that we are in the narrow door. The narrow door is right here. The narrow door is in this room. It's close to you. It's next to you. It's next to me. The narrow door is something we've been singing about this morning. Uh, I'm preaching about the narrow door. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say that Jesus Himself is here with us. That He is raised from the dead. And if He is truly is raised from the dead, then He's alive and He's with us. That uh, in a very real sense, He's with us like He was with those people back then. Wherever the Bible is opened and wherever the Spirit of God is working among His people, Jesus is here. And so He's still standing here saying, come on in. And I'm afraid that some of us are going to be like these, these people. You know, hey, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. Jesus, what, what do you mean you don't know me? I, I sang those songs in that church. And, you know, and I listened to Jeremy's sermon and, and I, I was really touched by this one story he told us one time and I actually started to cry in church. I mean, it was really moving. And, you know, we took communion. Remember, they passed out the juice and those little, you know, bread chiclet things, and I ate those, and I was part of it, you know. Like, I was there! I was there! And he's going, 
who are you? I don't know you. Because there is an eternally vast difference between being near the kingdom and coming to know Christ, pressing into Christ. Uh, maybe this will help. Uh, I was thinking about a distinction that theologians have made historically between grace and the means of grace. Have you kind of heard these phrases? Grace is uh, that thing that God does in our hearts in order to bring Christ into our lives, to forgive us, to save us. It's that work of God that takes a person like me and turns me into, uh, from a sinner into a person who loves Jesus. It's grace. And then theologians distinguish that work of God, that grace, from the means of grace, which would be kind of like the conduits or the delivery systems that God tends to use, that is his typical way of bringing his grace. And what are the means of grace? It's the preaching of God's Word, the study of the Bible, um, the sacraments, baptism, communion, being a part of the corporate worship of God's people. And, and so to receive the grace of God and to come to know Jesus, the typical way that happens is through those means. But they're clearly distinct, even though they're related. And I think what happens sometimes is we confuse the means of grace for the grace. And we assume that because we've been partaking of the means of grace or in close proximity to the means of grace, that God has done a work of grace in our hearts. So we have to strive to make sure that we're not committing the error of proximity, I think, according to this text. Don't just think that because we're close, we're there. We have to, to go in. Don't be an almost Christian. Because an almost Christian is just as good as an atheist. doesn't matter. We need to know Christ personally. You know, why are you in church? Why are you here? Why am I here? You know, we've got to ask ourselves those kinds of things. Why do we do what we do? Um, and for some of us, I think, you know, yeah, someone, you know, why did you come here to church? And they'll say, oh, I, I feel really uplifted in the church. You know, we sing these songs. They're just really uplifting. And I've had a hard week. I really have a, a tough job. And I come to church and I feel better. And I, I appreciate, you know, what, what we say and some of the words. And I always go away just kind of encouraged by something. And, you know, that's good. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you don't go out here beat up or anything like that. But, you know, and is there anything more? Or is it just kind of an emotional uplift? Because it, it really doesn't matter if we're uplifted. What really matters is Jesus who was uplifted on the cross. And Christianity is about knowing that Jesus. And am I coming to church because I, I love to sing songs to lift Him up? I, I want to praise His name. I, when I leave this service, I want to go out and tell people about Christ because I want Him lifted up in the world around me. That's the kind of urgency and commitment that matters, not just having a good feeling. Or some of us say, I, you know, I come to church because you know, my kids really need it and they need to hear something. And I mean, it's a really tough world out there and I want my kids to have some kind of moral foundation or spiritual foundation of some sort. And, you know, that's good too. I'm glad you want that for your kids. I want that for my kids too. But how tragic would it be if on that day we're saying, yeah, but Jesus, I brought my kids to the Sunday school. And, and he's saying, yeah, and I know them. They came to know me but I don't know you. And so we need to strive to know Jesus and not assume that proximity is the same thing as entering. And the other error, just quickly moving on here to verses 28 to 30, the other error Jesus points out, there's the error of proximity that keeps people from entering. They assume that close is good enough. Um, but as they say, close only counts in what? Horseshoes and hand grenades, right? It doesn't count in the kingdom of God. The other error that we make and that I make is what we might call the error of pedigree. It's the error of proximity and the error of pedigree. And simply put, the error of pedigree is assuming that having some religion in your family background is what counts. Right? So look, uh, look at verse 28. 
Jesus says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. I mean, this would have been such shocking language for those Jews to hear. Because here's Jesus, a Jew, talking to his fellow Jews, and he's like, yeah, there's going to be this feast. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are going to be there. You're not. What? These are our ancestors. We are descendants of Abraham. What do you mean I'm not going to be there? But wait, it gets worse. Look at verse 29. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, who's that referring to? That's a reference to the Gentiles. So, I mean, at this point, people would have just been passing out like, oh, boom. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know. What? The Gentiles? I mean, you know, they were debating as to whether the Pharisees got in or these Jews got in, but certainly the Gentiles were out. And Jesus is like, some of you here are going to be excluded and some Gentiles are coming in. And this would have just blown their minds, even though it's clearly taught in the Old Testament that that would happen. And yet somehow that was forgotten. And, and so they forgot that part of God's Word. But yeah, the Gentiles are coming in. Because as uh, John the Baptist said, God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. He doesn't need... He can do whatever He wants. And so... What defines the people of God today is not ethnicity or family heritage or religious upbringing. What defines God's people is Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It's really irrelevant. The issue is, do you have Christ? And wherever Christ is, all kinds of different people come together. Where Christ is, you'll find you know, Palestinians and Jews coming together around Jesus. Jesus brings people together because He's forming in Himself a new humanity. He is the door. And so let's not trust in our pedigree. Let's not assume because we have some religious background that we're fine. Um, I was, uh, you know, sometimes I'll talk to people and I'll meet, meet someone new in church and they're all excited. And sometimes when I feel a little more bold, I will ask them a question. I'll say, can I ask you a question? How is it that you came to know Jesus as your Savior? And unfortunately, too often, I'll get this kind of answer. They'll say, oh, well, um, well I, was, I, I was raised Lutheran. My mom was Lutheran, and I got baptized in Lutheran church. And my dad was Methodist, so that was kind of weird in our family. But then what happened was the Lutheran pastor that we really liked moved away, so we, I ended up like going to the Methodist church. And then the Methodist church, I got confirmed there. But then I went off to, high, went off to college, and I kind of... You know, college, I drifted away from the whole thing. But then, like, you know, like, I got married, and then we started thinking about we're having a family, so we should probably get back into some church. So we went to this non-denominational church near us, and it was really great. They had this great music, and we, you know, we met some, another nice couple there that we really liked. So we were going there for a while. Then we got transferred out here to Massachusetts, and now we're trying to find a church to go to. And we're not Baptists, but we like this church. The music's like the one we were in. And so, you know, we're really glad to be here. We're, you know, I think we're Baptists now. And, uh, you know, it's like... And, and I, I think this, but I never say it because I'm just not, I don't have enough clips for or whatever. But, you know, it's like, that's not what I asked. The question is, when did you come to know Christ? And, you know, what you're waiting for is something like, and then when I was in that non-denominational church, I realized for the first time that I was a sinner. And it finally dawned on me that I couldn't please God through just trying to be a good person. And that Christ was the Savior and He came into my life and He forgave me and He changed my life. And I don't know what's going on, but I just know it's different. And I'm following Him now. You know? and, and I'm looking for a church now where people are striving after Jesus. And so that's why I'm here. I'm trying to see if that's the kind of church you have where people are striving to know Christ. 
That's what I want to hear. Something you know, like that. You see the difference? It's not about religious pedigree. And can I just encourage you, uh, anyone here who's a, a kid, maybe you're in grade school or elementary school. I know a lot of our students are off at uh, Camp Cod this weekend. But if you're a high school or a junior higher, just don't assume that because your parents bring you to church that you're in the kingdom. Strive to enter the kingdom yourself. It doesn't matter how religious your parents are. You, could, you can have the most religious parents in the church, but you need to strive to enter the kingdom. You need to press in yourselves. Uh, my mom started bringing me to church when I was like, I was trying to remember, it was just about junior high, and you know we didn't really have any church in our background. My mom did when she was growing up, so she was kind of like rediscovering her religious roots, and so she was dragging us to church, and it was the first time I'd ever heard anything. I mean, I, you know, I was like, what is this church? So I started hearing, started learning. I went to the Sunday school classes. I started getting like the basic Bible knowledge. Oh, who's Abraham? Who's Moses? I didn't know any of these things. So I'm like learning the basic Bible stories and I'm learning about Jesus and I'm going to the vacation Bible schools and the youth groups and eating pizza and you know, all that stuff. And, um, and then something, and, and I was learning. It was great. And we had a great preacher and I was learning a lot from him. But then, you know, something started happening. And it was that it became more than just a general knowledge. I felt like God was saying to me personally, Hey, Jeremy, you need to follow Christ. And I can't, it wasn't anything. It wasn't like I had a vision or something. It was just a burden in my heart. And I, I was like, Whew! You know, what's that? And every Sunday the preacher would preach. And it just became like, I don't want to say an obsessive thought, but it was like a, a powerful thing from outside of me that was just telling me, You need to come to Christ. And I fought it and I didn't want to do it. You know, our church did this thing, altar calls. You guys know this thing where people, you know, at the end of every service, I mean, every service without fail, our pastor would say, anyone who wants to receive Jesus, come down. We're going to sing one more song. You know, the buses will wait kind of a thing. And without fail, every Sunday, no one ever went forward. Ever. Ever. I never saw anyone go forward. I was like, I don't know why we do this. It's kind of interesting. And, uh, and you know, and then the terror of God saying, Jeremy, you're going to go forward. You know, I'm a junior high. Like, no way. No way. But God was calling me to move beyond proximity and pedigree to know Him. And He was convicted. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that I needed forgiveness. All these truths that I'd read about were suddenly like being pointed into my own soul. And so finally, after about, I don't know how long it went on, like six or eight months, I mean, I would, we'd sing that closing hymn. I couldn't even sing. I would just be crying. I would just be shaking, holding the hymnal, because I knew God was calling me. And so finally, I, I slipped out of my pew and I, I walked to the front and I was sobbing. The church was sobbing. Everyone, I mean, it was just a total embarrassing spectacle. And, uh, and I, I don't know if they're just shocked, if they're happy to see me come to know God or if they're just shocked to see someone go forward. I don't know what it was. It, you, know, you have to press into the kingdom of God. You have to come to know Christ. And so don't settle for anything less. You know, there are people pressing into the kingdom of God all around the world today from north, south, east, and west. In India, there are missionaries going into the northern part of India, places that have never heard the gospel, places that are just blanketed with the darkness of uh, idolatry and witchcraft and immorality. And the gospel's going there. And those people are pressing into the kingdom despite their ancient village traditions of idolatry and sacrifice. Uh, in Muslim countries, there are men and women and children, even in closed nations, who one by one, quietly, are coming to the kingdom of God at great personal risk to their lives. Uh, today in China, there were literally 
millions of Christians in secret house churches. They have to meet secretly because otherwise they'd be sent off to prisons and gulags. And uh, that's going on today in China. But these Christians are meeting in house churches. I don't know if you've ever seen the inside of these house churches. Just imagine like your living room and the biggest place in your house crammed as tight with people as you can possibly pack it. That's what these house churches are like. And these people will come and they will cram in. They will press in. They will strive to get a place in because they just crave to sing to Christ and to hear the preaching of the Word. And then I think, here I sit. So comfortable. Suburban life is so easy. I have so many good things. Look, I have these nice clean clothes. I have so many clothes. I have so much freedom. There's nobody who's going to throw me in a gulag. I'm not going to be expelled from my family because I come to Christ. No one from the town of Norwell is going to persecute me from the government or throw me in jail. I have so much freedom and I'm so complacent. So we need to strive. We need to get a little fire in us and serve the Lord. Not you have to become you know, uh, a wild religious <laughs> wacko, but you do have to become zealous. You have to commit yourself to Christ and keep pressing in until you lay hold of Him. Don't settle for substitutes. Otherwise, we may find ourselves outside and others going in, and we might be surprised. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we praise You, Jesus, because You strove. You struggled all the way to the cross. You carried that piece of wood until You collapsed. Lord, You allowed them to strike You and whip You and crucify You, but You did it in order to save me. And so, Lord, I pray that the same spirit of earnest zeal and that warrior spirit that propelled Jesus forward to wage war against evil through dying on the cross, that same warrior spirit would propel us forward to wage war against sin in our lives and to wage war against evil in our lives. Lord, that we might be people who are striving and combating to draw close to You. So, Lord, forgive me for my complacency. Forgive us, Lord, for our laxness. And I pray that we would not be on the outside, that we would not commit the errors of proximity or pedigree, but that we would ourselves push into the kingdom of God. Thank You for Your Word, Lord, that's so challenging and yet seems like the more challenging it is, the more refreshing and encouraging it is too. So Lord, thank you for your word now. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We want to sing a, a closing song in response to God's word this morning. We want to sing to him.